what's up, man? This is your boy, Uncle Jimmy from Fearless, featuring Jason Whitlock. And again, I'm giving you your weekend Whitlock update, right? This is when I tell you everything that you missed on the week of Fearless, featuring Jason Whitlock on the Blaze Network. And let's get right to it, shall we? All right, on Monday's show... Jason talked about the Washington National Ballpark shooting. I don't want to ruin it for you, but uh, Jason believes that this could be belong because of gangs and violence. I think uh, he's got a pretty interesting take on it. Let's check it out. Saturday night in our nation's capital, gunshots outside of Washington Nationals ballpark sent fans inside the stadium scrambling for safety. Suspended a Major League Baseball game and injured three people. Mainstream corporate media blame gun violence. The more likely culprit is gang violence. Police say the shots came from shooters in separate cars firing at each other. Maybe guns were behind the steering wheels and pulling the triggers. It's more likely gang members drove the cars and aimed the weapons. As a country, we loathe to talk about gang violence unless we're glorifying it in music. We prefer to discuss the danger of guns and the evil of the National Rifle Association. I used to do it too. The last time gun violence impacted a sporting event, I argued in a column that the Second Amendment had outlived its usefulness. That was in 2012. A linebacker for the Kansas City Chiefs, Javon Belcher, shot and killed his girlfriend and then drove to the team's practice facility and shot and killed himself in front of the team's head coach and general manager. I wrote a piece for Fox Sports stating that what I believed at the time, the proliferation of handguns makes America unsafe. The great broadcaster, Bob Costas, read an excerpt of my column on NBC's Sunday Night Football in America. Listen to this. You want some actual perspective on this? Well, a bit of it comes from the Kansas City-based writer Jason Whitlock, with whom I do not always agree, but who today said it so well that we may as well just quote or paraphrase from the end of his article. Our current gun culture, Whitlock wrote, ensures that more and more domestic disputes will end in the ultimate tragedy and that more convenience store confrontations over loud music coming from a car will leave more teenage boys bloodied and dead. Handguns do not enhance our safety. They exacerbate our flaws, tempt us to escalate arguments, and bait us into embracing confrontation rather than avoiding it. In the coming days, Javon Belcher's actions and their possible connection to football will be analyzed. Who knows? But here, wrote Jason Whitlock, is what I believe. If Javon Belcher didn't possess a gun, he and Cassandra Perkins would both be alive today. Now, I've never liked guns. I still don't. But the last decade has helped me understand their value in a free society. A decade ago, I took American freedom for granted. I thought the people who argued that the political left would strip Americans of basic freedoms, I thought they were crazy. Now I don't think they're crazy. The government and big tech are steadfastly censoring speech they don't like. They're dictating medical choices for all of us. They're recklessly 
op they've recklessly opened our borders and relaxed immigration restrictions. They've undermined respect for and support of law enforcement to the point that many major cities feel absolutely lawless. I live in a very nice, pricey area of Midtown Nashville. There have been several shootings, including a murder within a block of my building. I'm gonna get a gun in 2021. It's inevitable. The gatekeepers of American culture, the super elites who live in gated communities and employ private security teams have purposely created a culture that bows to violent gang culture. Look at the reaction to what happened at Washington Nationals ballpark. A fan who left the game to catch an Uber was one of the victims. Gang violence directly impacted the sports world. Are the multimillionaire social activist athletes loudly decrying what happened? Have we heard from Colin Kaepernick or LeBron James? Has Jamel Hill tweeted a word? They're all sitting by police scanners waiting for a white cop to shoot another unarmed black resisting criminal suspect. That happens about once a month. Gang shootings happen hourly across America. But you can't gain Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook followers taking on the Crips, Bloods, Gangster Disciples, and MS-13. What you can do is idolize and celebrate the rappers who normalize and celebrate gang culture and gang violence. I've had a long, I've long had a love-hate relationship with gangster rap music. I consider commercial rap fast food, something that I clearly enjoy but I also know is bad for my health. Dr. Dre, he's McDonald's. Tupac Shakur, Popeye's Chicken. Tech Nine, he's Wendy's, my favorite. You can't eat fast food forever though. It's going to kill you. The glorification of gang culture is killing America. You might think it's only killing black America. That's not true. You have to think of the left-wing gatekeepers, the Hollywood and music executives who finance the promotion of gang culture, you gotta think of them the same way as you think of the scientists at the Wuhan lab in China. Gangster rap is a gang of function mutation that escaped the lab and is killing us all. American culture is in crisis. We've legalized a lethal dose of immorality, dishonesty, and idolatry. Our code of conduct is driven by popularity, profit, and fear. It's safer to demonize guns than gangs. Guns don't pull triggers, gangs do. And on Tuesday's show, I knew this was coming. Jason tackles the SI swimsuit cover issue with the black women. Oh, he definitely had a fire starter with this one. And I'm going to warn you right now. You need to listen to this one before you make a judgment on, woo, she really looks hot on that cover of Sports Illustrated. You better listen to this fire starter before you make a judgment. Let me get to it. The left-wing obsession with placing itself on the right side of a fraudulent history, corporate media plans to write, reached a historic zenith yesterday. At least Sports Illustrated thinks so. The formerly iconic sports magazine trumpeted it, its 2021 swimsuit edition with bold proclamations about its history-making trifecta of cover models. Mm. 
Tennis star Naomi Osaka is the first Haitian and Japanese cover model. Megan Thee Stallion is the first rapper and uncastrated male horse on the cover. You're going to hell. And Lena Bloom, well, <laughs> she's the goat of goats. Bloom is the first transgender cover model. But that's not all. Osaka, The Stallion, and Bloom are the first trio of black people to grace the cover of Sports Illustrated's Swimsuit Edition. Okay. Yesterday, the blue checkmark Twitter and Legacy Media partied like it was 2099 and the Great Reset was celebrating its 70th birthday. Cosmopolitan Magazine tweeted with glee, <laughs> Megan the Stallion makes history as the first rapper ever to pose for Sports Illustrated swimsuit cover. Woo! Hallelujah! There you go with that voice. Page Six tweeted about Bloom and Osaka. Entertainment Weekly, People Magazine, The Today Show, all through Twitter confetti high in the air. Hallelujah. Progress. Hallelujah. This is history. Yes, sir. This yes, is sir. a transformational Come on now. moment in American culture. Yes, sir. This is Neil Armstrong taking one giant step. For mankind. I'm sorry. Mankind. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I got good. I'm sorry. The swimsuit edition reminds me of other great moments in black history. My parents, they can remember exactly where they were in 1947 when Jackie Robinson broke baseball's color barrier. My grandparents fondly remembered when Jesse Owens took four gold medals at the Berlin Olympics. Has anyone forgotten that day in 1974 when Hank Aaron smashed home run number 715 and surpassed Babe Ruth? Now, who will forget this moment when desperate editors of a failing magazine resorted to a publicity stunt exploiting racial tension and gender dysphoria? Let me quote from Lena Bloom. This moment heals a lot of pain in the world. We observe this moment, we deserve this moment. We have waited millions of years to show up as survivors and be seen as full humans filled with wonder. I get Bloom's joy. Gender dysphoria is a serious issue. I'm not gonna begrudge Bloom and other transgenders their sense of normalcy. But Uncle Jimmy, I got a problem. My problem is, with the packaging of gender dysphoria with the black race. Sports Illustrated made intentional, calculated choices. They injected race into the swimsuit occasion. These choices are subjective. No one earns the swimsuit cover. It's given. It's not an accomplishment. It's affirmative action. And they chose three black women intentionally. It was a time when magazines such as Sports Illustrated gained attention celebrating the actual history-making accomplishments of all athletes. Now legacy public print publications and corporate media outlets troll the public for relevance and cast their virtue signals as historic moments. Why wouldn't they? They plan to write the history your grandchildren and great-grandchildren will read. In the world that corporate media are plotting, immoral pornographic rappers will be portrayed as thought leaders and public intellectuals. Biological men 
with balls, with the balls, to surgically transition to women will be described as heroes in every bit as courageous as the soldiers who stormed Normandy. In the aftermath of the Great Reset, the Christian values that led this country down the path to freedom and greatness will be characterized as evil. My problem is the puppet masters are using race and racism as the Trojan horses to socially engineer America into a new reality. No one made history with the SI covers. The swim to suit edition is the further rewriting of history. It's another companion to the New York Times 1619 project. Let's call it what it is. 362436 project written by the Alphabet Mafia. Now that's a fire. That's a fire. I'm impressed. And on Wednesday, my man, prime time, Deion Sanders, somehow or another managed to get himself in the crosshairs because a reporter wanted to address him as Deion. You need to hear what Whitlock has to say about this. Oh, my. Deion Sanders says he was joking Tuesday when he ended an interview abruptly because a newspaper reporter repeatedly called him Deion. <laughs> if so, the NFL legend turned Jackson State University head coach cracked a bad joke at the SWAC football media day. He created the impression that the white reporter disrespected him because of his black race. The reporter, Nick Suss of Mississippi's Clarion Ledger newspaper, finds himself embroiled in a social media storm he did not create. Dion's joke has made Suss's job much more difficult. 24 hours ago, Suss begged people on Twitter to please stop tweeting about me. He knows he can't win this battle. A white man from Mississippi has little chance of surviving a racial conflict adjudicated via social media. Guy's got no shot. This is Suss's Mississippi burning nightmare. Only Dion can put out that fire. All right, here's what happened. Sanders specifically called for Nick Suss to ask him a question. Quote, let me get Nick. Let me get Nick. Nick is a good guy. Sanders began their exchange. Suss then responded, hey, Dion, just wondering if you could. And then Dion cut him off. And Dion said, hold on. Let's back up a little bit. You don't call Nick Saban, Nick. Don't call me Dion now. Sus jumps back in. I call Nick Saban, Nick. I call you Dion. Said it politely. Dion would not relent. No, you don't. No, you don't. That's a lie. If you call Nick Saban, Nick, you know you'll get cussed out on the spot. Don't do me like that. Treat me like Nick. Sanders smiled and then began to laugh. Sus responded, okay, Dion. And then he, Sus, smiled and began to laugh too. Sanders then stood up and walked out of the interview. Reporters immediately tweeted about the incident. The Clarion Ledger wrote a news story covering the exchange. Six hours later, Sanders released a video showing his interaction with Sus and calling it, ending it with a video of Sanders dancing 
to the mid 2000s rap song, Walk, Walk It Out. Walk It Out. You don't gotta take my word for any of this. Let's watch the whole thing so you know that I'm telling you the truth. They don't believe Nick's me. Nick's us, you're up. Hey, Dion, I was just wondering if you could- Oh, hold on, let's back up a little bit. You don't call Nick Saban Nick. Don't call me Dion now, okay? I call Nick Saban Nick. Yeah, you don't. No, you don't. No, you don't. That's a lie. If you, if you call Nick Nick, you know you'll get cussed out on the spot. So don't do that to me. Treat me like Nick. Okay, Dion. Um, <laughs> Just uh now walk it out, 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 now west I walk it out, 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 I walk it out. Now, as Paul Harvey would say, for the rest of the story. On Monday, that's two days ago, the Clarion Ledger published a story focusing on the domestic violence legal entanglements of Jackson State's top 2021 recruit, a four-star wide receiver named Quadarius Davis. He's the highest rated recruit in Jackson State football history. He originally committed to the University of Kansas. Kansas cut ties with Davis in late March when a friend of Davis's alleged victim posted two pictures of her in a hospital room, allegedly recovering from her injuries. Dion is upset with the Clarion Ledger. Nick Suss is collateral damage of Dion's temper tantrum. Reporters, black and white, routinely call coaches by their first name. Jamel Hill, she don't mind race baiting. She even tweeted out, she covered Nick Saban and Tom Izzo at Michigan State and referred to them by their first name in interviews. Dion assassinated Suss's character because he's mad at Suss's employer, the Clarion Ledger. This is unchristian. Sanders is a believer. He's a flawed believer like the rest of us. He's certainly flawed like I am. I'm a huge Dion Sanders fan. I love the work he's doing and the attention he's bringing to historically black colleges and universities. Dion is well-intentioned. The road to hell and the road to Damascus are both paved with good intentions. In this instance, Dion needs to change course and head towards Damascus. He owes Suss an apology. He can't write this off as a joke gone bad. It's a bad joke that leaves Suss damaged. As black people, we waste too much energy interpreting the actions of white people and too little time evaluating our own. Mm. We foolishly believe their actions are more important than our actions. We've anointed them our gods. It's a mistake. Did he call me by my first name out of disrespect? Or because he's familiar with me? A couple of months ago, I'm gonna share this story, Jimmy. I'm getting slayed about this over Twitter. Mm. My best friend from high school, his son, an 18-year-old, called me Jason in a text message. I remember this story. We were communicating about his graduation gift. I corrected him and said, Aaron, call me Mr. Whitlock. He apologized and explained that he's so used to hearing his dad and mom talk about Jason, but that was all he could think to call me. He had his black, his whole family's black. Sometimes people get so familiar with you 
that it's natural for them to become informal. It happens to public figures. Reporters think they know the coaches they cover. When I worked in Kansas City, we called Marty Schottenheimer, Marty, and Roy Williams, Roy. Having lived in Kansas City in a decade, I call Andy Reid, Big Red, or I call him Andy. Dion knows all this. He's angry at the newspaper, so he gave in to what's popular on social media, race bait. He fired an unfair shot at a harmless, well-intentioned reporter. The road to Damascus is just an apology away, Dion. Take it. That's a fire. Walk it out, walk it out, walk it out. That's what Maria Taylor told ESPN. I'm walking out, I'm walking out. And uh, of course, Jason makes a Game of Thrones reference again. Go figure. And also, he brings up something uh, from the Monaghan Report from the 1960s. And if you don't remember that, and of course most of you don't, you need to listen to it because it's one of his better pieces of work. The sense of entitlement that caused 34-year-old broadcaster Maria Taylor to exit ESPN in a ridiculous and nasty contract dispute was built over the course of nearly 60 years. Yesterday, Taylor and ESPN president Jimmy Pataro jointly announced that her seven-year meteoric rise at the network had abruptly crashed and burned. Maria Taylor's out. Taylor and her representatives demanded a contract that rivaled 53-year-old ESPN employee Stephen A. Smith. Smith earns between $8 and $12 million a year. He's worked at the company for the better part of two decades. For better or worse, he replaced Chris Berman as the face of the network. He has an audience and a following. Maria Taylor, he has an attitude and a striking appearance and a willingness to do anything in pursuit of power and money. She reminds me of my favorite character from the TV show Game of Thrones. You guys remember Cersei Lannister? Yeah, I loved her. She was evil. I guess that would make Rachel Nichols, Lady Marjorie, a deceased rival of Cersei's. In a desperate last-minute attempt to leverage ESPN to meet her contract demands, Taylor, with assistance from the New York Times, torched Nichols. NFL legend Drew Brees and broadcaster Dave Lamont and all of King's Landing. Taylor pretended that a year-old private comment by Nichols, a white female co-worker, was the final piece of proof exposing the vicious systemic oppression Taylor endured while at ESPN while their management whisked her to the top of the industry. For the last year, Taylor sipped wine, saying, we shall overcome, Mm. stood on the neck and shoulders of George Floyd in a cash grab. Yes, I said that. Maria Taylor stood on the neck and shoulders of George Floyd in a cash grab. She played the race card and used George Floyd in her contract negotiations. I might be insulting Cersei Lannister with the Maria Taylor comparison. Mm. Maria Taylor's entitlement is 60 years in the making. Let me explain how Taylor got here, how at the tender age of 34, she convinced herself a white woman's private gossip made her worth $8 million a year. This all started in the mid-1960s when the Assistant Secretary of Labor, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, 
decided to research and write a study examining the plight of black Americans. His report was titled, The Negro Family, The Case for National Action. Published in 1965, the media referred to it as the Monaghan Report. Sparked by President Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty Initiative and Civil Rights and the Civil Rights Movement, the Monaghan Report was five chapters long and called for the government to take unprecedented action in support of the black family. Monaghan wrote, in this new period, the expectations of Negro Americans will go beyond civil rights. Being Americans, they will now expect that in the near future, equal opportunities for them as a group will produce roughly equal results as compared with other groups. This is not going to happen, nor will it happen for generations to come unless a new and special effort is made. Monaghan continued, measures that have worked in the past or would work for most groups in the present will not work here. A national effort is required that will give a unity of purpose to the many activities of the federal government in this area, directed to a new kind of national goal, the establishment of a stable Negro family structure. The Moynihan Report was a direct call for investment in the black man. The Moynihan Report was a direct call for investment in the black man. In chapter four of the report, the report specifically addressed the problem of a black matriarchal culture. The report stated, a fundamental fact of Negro American family life is the often reversed roles of husband and wife. Negro husbands have unusually low power. That was directly stated in the report. It's easy to find the Moynihan Report online. We go click, go punch it into Google, find the link, read it for yourself. It reads like prophecy. Read the prop, read it for yourself. President Johnson initially loved the Moynihan Report. In June of 1965, at Howard University, he gave a speech co-authored by Moynihan based on the report. Two months later, the media demonized the Moynihan Report as racist and Johnson disavowed it, scrapped it from the War on Poverty and the Great Society initiatives. Let me crystallize what happened. The Moynihan Report called for investment in the black man and the restoration of the black family. Great society programs focused instead on investment in women and couldn't care less about traditional family structure. The spoils of the civil rights movement went to women. The feminist movement overtook the civil rights movement. The black woman licked her finger, stuck it in the air, figured out which direction the winds were blowing, and it wasn't blowing the black man's direction, and the black woman switched teams. She became a feminist. You may not like what I'm saying, but that's exactly what the hell happened. Wow. Patrick Moynihan diagnosed a cancer destroying black America, the emasculation and the marginalization of the black man. The left rejected his diagnosis. They didn't trust the science, so they framed it as racist, 
offered the black woman 20 pieces of silver, Mm -mm. offered the black woman 20 pieces of silver. Come on, man. And the cancer metastasized all over, and then they doubled down on the black matriarchy. That's what happened. Maria Taylor is the byproduct of the black matriarchy, of 55 years of relentless investment in and celebration of the black woman, and the exact opposite treatment of the black man and the black family. That's what's happened the last 55 years. I don't care if you don't like it, those are facts. They invested in women, they invested in black women, and they neglected and set about destroying the black man and emasculating him. For the last 55 years, all Maria Taylor has heard and every other black woman, you can do no wrong. You are the proper leader of black culture. And you don't need a black man for anything beyond occasional casual sex. The whole system has been rigged to create black Cersei Lannisters. I don't care if you don't like it, it's the facts, it's the truth. 55 years ago, the Monaghan Report specifically addressed the widening educational and achievement gap between black women and black men. Those gaps are far wider today. But all you hear about is, oh God, we gotta elevate these black women. You'll never hear anybody talking about elevating the black boy, man, anything. There is no focus on us. You know what we get? We get George Floyd memorials. You know what we get? We get Ahmaud Arbery birthday celebrations and bashes. We get black criminals raised from the dead, resurrected as pagan gods. And you wonder why I'm pissed off half the time? Every bit of the chaos, dysfunction, degeneracy, violence, and lack of achievement everyday black people are living with today was documented predicted and discussed in 1965. A clear game plan and solution were called for in 1965, two years before I was born. We let the media convince us that investing in the black man and the black family was racist. Let me repeat that. Say it again. We let the media convince us that investing in the black man and the black family was racist. Mm. We fell for that shit. Mm. You wonder why corporate media is obsessed with framing everything as racist? It works. It works as a way of getting black people to make decisions against our best interests. The left wants you to believe America's systemically racist so that they can tear up the Constitution and rewrite it in a way that gives elites more power and control so they can keep burying you. Maria Taylor's left-wing collaborators will provide her a soft landing at, M- at NBC where she will stand as a multi-million dollar symbol of the rewards for serving the matriarchy, feminism, and the BLM, LGBT, QIA plus alphabet mafia. How long are we gonna go for this? And on Friday's show, the hot story going around, the NFL and COVID shots. NFL players are starting to take a stance saying, hey, we give you all we got, but y'all can go to hell with that COVID vaccine shot. Check it out. Hey, I'm Uncle Jimmy. We love you like a play cousin. Hey, check us out. Follow us on the podcast 
at Jason Whitlock at what the hell else is that man's name.com? Anyway, look it up. So according to this country's newspaper of record, the New York Times, America is systemically racist and has been since 1619. President Joe Biden, Vice President Kamala Harris, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, former President Barack Obama, former First Lady Michelle Obama, the six members of the U.S. House of Representatives who call themselves the squad, CNN, MSNBC, ESPN, Nike, the NBA, the NFL, Come on, our highest academic institutions, and best of all, black Twitter, all of them in some way support the New York Times narrative on America. And you wonder why football star DeAndre Hopkins is reluctant to take the COVID vaccine. No mystery here. Hopkins skepticism of the efficacy of the vaccines makes perfect sense. As a black man, he's been programmed to distrust the motives and deeds of the country that enriched him. When he turns on his television, pops an app on his smartphone, or listens to his favorite R&B hip hop radio station, he's overwhelmed by anti-American sentiment. America, Uncle Jimmy, America's Derek Chauvin. Oh boy. And Hopkins is George Floyd. Uh-oh. Hopkins' racist country sees him as a violent drug addict who must be subdued by any means necessary. I'd question his sanity if he enthusiastically took the vaccine. On Thursday, the Arizona Cardinals receiver and several other NFL players reacted to the league's heavy-handed approach pushing vaccinations on its players. A league memo said that teams with COVID outbreaks caused by unvaccinated players could lead to forfeitures of games and forfeitures of paychecks. Hopkins wasn't real thrilled. He tweeted, never thought I would say this, but being in a position to hurt my team because I don't want to partake in the vaccine is making me question my future in the NFL. Hopkins is an eight-year NFL veteran on pace for a Hall of Fame career. So far, he's earned approximately $85 million. He's real happy, but he deleted his tweet and then posted another one with just a single word, freedom, with a question mark. Los Angeles Rams all-pro cornerback, Jalen Ramsey, who is also black, tweeted, I know two people right now who got the vaccine but are COVID positive. I'm just saying, I wouldn't look at a teammate as bad if he don't take the vax. No pressure from number five. I get where these guys are coming from. It makes perfect sense. For a time, the the anti-vaccination movement was framed by corporate media as a MAGA movement, as the resistance of angry white males. Corporate media did this despite statistics showing the black man and woman are the most reluctant Americans to get the shot. Once again, as always, corporate media are lying. Are you surprised? You shouldn't be. Corporate media, your favorite broadcasters on CNN and MSNBC, your favorite reporters and editors at the New York Times, including redheaded Ida Bay Wells, 
Oh boy. Constantly wrap black America in a state of racial confusion. America is systemically racist, except when 1994 crime bill writer Joe Biden is in the White House. Oh, Joe, he isn't racist. Good old Joe. Unless she asked Kamala Harris. Oh, that's right. She didn't mean it when she insinuated he was bigoted in their 2019 debate. That was just old fashioned debating. Nothing to see there. She was just joking. Here's what we know for sure. If Donald Trump still called the White House home, the very people pushing the hardest for NFL players to get vaccinated would take the opposite position. Medicine, like everything else, has been politicized. This isn't a debate about science. It's all a wrestling match over political power. Yesterday, I mentioned the HBO TV show Game of Thrones. Some people couldn't get into the series because of the plot lines around medieval sorcery and fantasy. Bug me too. But the show and the books are really about exposing the depths men and women will sink to in their pursuit of power. History makes it clear there's nothing humans won't do to acquire power. Nothing. We have and will commit unspeakable atrocities to impose our will on each other. 24-hour race baiting on TV and social media to control a voting block? <laughs> That's nothing. Hell, it's downright humanitarian compared to Hitler's tactics. America's most influential institutions have told DeAndre Hopkins, me, and every other black American that we should distrust our homeland. They've said that nothing has really changed in the last 240 years as it pertains to this country's relationship with black people. If America is really that evil, why would anyone, regardless of color, take a vaccine developed here and advocated for by our government? The people pushing the vaccines are the bad guys, not DeAndre Hopkins. Beep. Hit that like and subscribe button. Also, you can follow us on YouTube, Fearless with Jason Whitlock. And also follow Jason on Twitter, at Whitlock Jason on the Twitter. You know how it works. Hit the like and subscribe. We love you. We'll see you back. Come see what's going on Monday. We love you. Don't forget it, America. Stay fearless. I just I just I just